Welcome to episode 116 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. John. So for our, our podcast today, Dirk, I thought we could discuss a little bit about the design of one particular aspect of our criminal justice system, uh, which is the growing use of risk assessments uh, across the country. So for our listeners who uh, may not be familiar with risk assessments, they are essentially using statistical data to figure out whether someone who has committed a crime is likely to do it again. And there are a variety of program types, uh, software types that, that do this, and it's used in various aspects of our criminal justice system. Um, now, Right now, it's primarily used after somebody is sentenced and they're trying to figure out if that person can go into a rehabilitation-type program or if they're going to go uh, into prison proper. So it helps to streamline uh, less violent uh, offenders who, who may not you know, need to do hard prison time and can be rehabilitated. Uh, but now there is quite a bit of controversy being kicked up because there's a consideration in Pennsylvania for using risk assessments during the sentencing phase of the, the criminal uh, system. So, so what that would mean is that your sentence, your prison sentence itself, could be determined by, uh, you know, statistical data about other people who are similar to you, and that is that has caused all kinds of um, hubbub. And there's a wonderful article on. Uh, uh, 538 blog, uh, which was done in collaboration with the Marshall uh, Project, and the title of that article is, Should Prison Sentences Be Based on Crimes That Haven't Been Committed Yet? So that's a very uh, minority report style uh, title, very provocative. And I, I loved the Minority Report movie, but it's, you know, a terrifying premise of, you know, uh, locking up people for crimes that they haven't uh, even done yet. So we're not quite there yet with risk assessments, but boy, the specter of that sort of hangs over this discussion. Dirk, what's your take on this? I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting and touchy topic. You know, I, I first started to talk about some of these issues about five years ago in, in uh, my first TEDx talk. And we are on the science side understanding human behavior and the human condition so quickly, so deeply, uh, so much. And, and the reality is um, already, even going back to when we were relatively dumb about these things, uh, it was predictable who would commit crimes. So. Uh, again, I, I researched this in the context of my TEDx talk, so I'm pretty well versed on it. So, for example, um, the number one predictor of if an individual will commit a crime is their gender. If someone is a male, their um, the chance that they will commit, and not just a crime, um, I'll get the terms wrong because it's been a few years since I did this research, but it's it's certain classes of like violent crimes, crimes that involve physical violence and physical um, 
uh, uh, sort of uh, imposing of the physical will and self, um, you know, over others. Um, you know, if, if you're male, that's the top predictor. It's, it's uh, orders of magnitude more likely that just because you're a male, you're going to commit those crimes than, than a female. And then there's other, um, there's other predictors as well, a whole series of them. But to the point where, uh, going back to when we didn't understand the human condition nearly as well as we do now, they would be able to, to, to say this class of people, this type of people are far more likely to make, commit crimes based on socioeconomic status um, at the more macro level, but then even on the micro level, um, things like testosterone, you know, the chemicals in our body, which were known, uh, again, more abstractly, not as well before, but we're knowing better and better now. Um, you know, if, if um, the doctor, you know, if we're born, and I actually don't know how uh, testosterone um, evolves in, in our bodies as we grow. So maybe when we're born isn't the right time to do it. But if at a certain milepost in our life, we go into the doctor's office or listen in the future, it's just on our device um, and we have our testosterone level checked. And if it's over a certain level, um, you know, there's, there's a substantial better chance of certain crimes being committed by that individual than someone with testosterone that's, that's much lower. Um, what do we do with that information? You know, I mean, historically, we wouldn't do anything with it. We'd say, you know, you, you, each person at the end of the day has free will is the belief and um, they're going to do or not do what they do. And then they'll be punished based on what they do if they do something wrong. But what that's, the, the rights that that's ignoring are the rights of the victim. So if, if we can begin to figure out, um, you know, what are the chances for certain types of people, for certain people, even certain individuals, and be able to say, this person has a 62% chance of N, um, is it still acceptable to, to leave that 62% chance out there as a free radical and then punish it if it happens and hope that it doesn't and meanwhile, there's a victim on the other end of it that potentially has their life, you know, permanently, permanently altered. So uh, it, it just it opens the door onto all kinds of moral questions, onto all kinds of, um, you know, sort of social engineering questions, um, you know, biological, you know, intrusiveness. You know, um, should should males above a certain level of testosterone allow to be allowed to continue with that, or should they have a pill, or should they? have a surgery because we can tell that there's a much greater chance that they commit a crime. It's, it's just, it's a huge can of worms, but it's one we're coming to really soon, um, but nobody sees it coming. So I, I did think that article was very interesting and in, in sort of starting down that path a little bit, albeit, you know, more based on, on the sentencing, the aftermath side, as opposed to the predictive side. Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of elements uh, at play in in this, you know, how risk assessments are are being used currently, and and part of that part of the data that's being collected, uh, you know, as you pointed out, being male, obviously, uh, uh, sort of uh, the disposition towards crime is is increased, as well as being, say, uh, a previous offender. And, you know, given uh, the t various types of crime, you know, those uh, violent crimes, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, dispose you more to recidivism, uh, things like that. Um, but ultimately, those are all sort of elements that uh, are in a database somewhere and they're, you know, not necessarily tied to, you know, the individual 
that's that's going to be receiving this sentence. So so it becomes a, a really tough nut to crack when you're trying to decide somebody's fate uh, for next X number of years, and you have statistical data, but you can't see inside that person and and know whether or not they're going to, uh, you know, commit another crime. So the reason why uh, the states like risk assessments is because there are so many people incarcerated right now in uh, uh, the American prison systems that frankly, we don't have beds uh, to house, uh, you know, all the people. Additionally, you know, the budget uh, continues to increase uh, year over year. I think Pennsylvania spends $2 billion locking people up. Uh, America, uh, generally speaking, uh, likes to locks to lock people up, uh, and we're spending an awful lot of money on that. So risk assessments are seen from both the conservative and the liberal side uh, as being a possible uh, way out of this mess. Uh, the, the conservatives will see it as a a possibility for locking up, you know, the truly dangerous criminals and and letting the folks uh, be re- rehabilitated who can be, uh, whereas. Uh, the liberal argument is that, hey, we're using data to to sort of uh, um, remove some of the institutional bias that has been uh, become such a uh, uh, lightning rod in this country over the over the past couple of years. So so what's interesting is that that, you know, the intentions are good, but we can see coming uh, quite possibly uh, scenarios where individuals rights are going to be trampled on. Well, I, I think I think that we're going to have to go through a reframing of what are individuals' rights. So up to this point, it has been the rights of <clears throat> what's the best way to put this? It's it's been the rights of the the criminal over the rights of the victim. So um you know, using murder as an example. Um, If you murder someone or murder a lot of people, you're given a sentence and when the sentence is over, you're you're on your way. And so, you know, you have to um, acknowledge that you're a felon or, I mean, there, there are some limits, but for the most part, you can, you know, if you murdered somebody in Maine, you can move to New Mexico and start over. And nobody knows that you're a murderer. Uh, and you may be a murderer who's, who's compelled to, to try it again. Um, but the, your rights are protected. You don't have an M carved into your forehead to show that you're a murderer. And that leaves exposure um, to different degrees, depending on the individual murderer, for the people in the free society who are, are surrounded um, who are surrounding you now. So that's always been the default. But what's interesting is over the last, I don't know how recent, uh, certainly uh, 20th century or sooner, but I don't know how late into the 20th century, the one exception to this uh, is with sex offenders. So sex offenders do essentially have an S carved into their forehead. They have to go and register as sex offenders uh, whenever they move somewhere. So we have, as a society, um, sort of arbitrarily chosen that that class of criminal is going to be branded and additionally punished and um, is going to, in order to protect the rights of a potential future victim, 
this person who may or may not commit a future crime is going to be branded in ways that make it nearly impossible for them to live the rest of their life. Now, I don't have particular sympathy for sex offenders, but it's instructive um, that you know, we have culturally chosen just to focus on, on that specific uh, microcosm, not murderers, but sex offenders. Um, and so the question is, will that type of thinking bloom and blossom out to many more instantiations of, of crime and predictability. You know, if, if I'm over a certain threshold um, of, of markers as a repeat offender, do I need to register? Do I need to staple to every, every document that I, I have with a city, a state, an employer? Uh, if I'm going to get married, do I have to staple on the criminal um, flag? I don't know, but it's, it's possible. So it, it, there, there's going to be some really interesting moments, um, some really interesting working through this as the predictability gets higher and higher. And I mean, it's, you know, big data was such a, you know, a cliche thing, you know, five years ago and is still really popular. But this is a great example of where big data is so powerful. If you have, if you have science, if you have a, an infrastructure that you can pour a lot of data into, um, you know, that, that has some validity to it, suddenly you can, you can determine some really interesting uh, and powerful things. One of those potentially is the likelihood of people to commit crimes again. And uh, if, if you know that I have an 82% chance of committing another violent crime, for, for me as a citizen and, and saying, considering human rights and, and the rights of the citizens, I want me as the 82% future violator to be controlled. I don't want the 82% future violator to be given that 82% chance uh, to harm and, and destroy other people. That, that doesn't seem equitable to me. And my saying that probably to a number of people listening to this show is very controversial, um, which gets to the complexity of, of the issue. I think, I think it's really interesting, really interesting stuff. And we're, we're heading towards a whole new sort of moral, moral battleground that uh, we, haven't, you know, we haven't had to deal with in, in our culture in the past, but it's, it's coming fast and it has the potential to end up doing much more good for the society and for our citizens. But probably at, if we go down that path at the expense of individual rights in ways we become accustomed to taking for granted. Um, it, it, I've, I'm fascinated to see how this all plays out. Yeah, it's, it's probably worth mentioning at this point that, I mean, risk assessment is the, is the name given to you know, this, this type of vetting system. Um, and, you know, it's systemized and it's ordered and it's done in a certain way. Now, risk assessment uh, in a more general sense, it has always been practiced by parole officers and judges and lawyers and police officers. Uh, they just 
are are doing it based on expert knowledge, right? So they are making, you know, parole boards are making decisions about, you know, whether or not to release somebody. Police officers are making decisions about whether or not to arrest somebody or pull somebody over. Judges are making decisions about uh, sentencing based on uh, circumstances that they're evaluating based on their expert opinion. But none of that in particular is transparent to the public. And the reasons that are incorporated into all of those, uh, you know, sets of decisions that, you know, lead to someone being incarcerated or let out are uh, not auditable. They're, they're not visible. Um, and so one of the things that the risk assessment tool, whether it be paper or software, um, what it does is it exposes some of the decision-making that's being made uh, around this, this process, and it, it provides a numerical, uh, numerical value, of course, um, and it does pull from uh, statistical information. Um, and in, in that respect, you know, it might not be as nuanced as a judge's, uh, uh, you know, assessment of an individual's family situation or things they've done in the past. But, but it does provide a, a, a trail that, uh, that, that we can sort of easily see as, uh, as public citizens and, and begin to evaluate why we are uh, incarcerating certain people um, and not others or why we're, uh, you know, there's, there are people being released and, and not others. So, so I think that's an interesting byproduct of this discussion is the idea that we're going to have hopefully some additional transparency that comes along with this, uh, this uh, risk assessment. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So, so one other point I think is worth uh, is exploring is that um, in in light of this, you know, uh, additional transparency, there's uh, you know possibility of exposing certain certain trends that uh, that may very well be biased um, within our our criminal justice system. So so if minorities are more likely to be uh, arrested at 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 a, a traffic stop, and that um, that arrest record is is used statistically to inform sentencing. Uh, you would hope that we would begin to see a trend in uh, the way the risk assessments are used, and say, "Aha! There is there is a disproportionate number of minority individuals being stopped at traffic stops, and you know that is that is um, uh, has." an effect on the, on the risk assessments, generally speaking. Uh, so, so we need to correct for that aberration um, in the risk assessment. So I do think that uh, scientifically and mathematically and from a software design perspective, there are some interesting good things that could come out of this. But uh, like you, I'm, I'm fascinated to see uh, where this goes because as we all know, uh, software, uh, can be full of bugs and systems can be full of, of problems. So I don't know if we're just creating more problems by introducing uh, this risk assessment, but, uh, you know, I'm anxious to find out. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the one, the one opportunity that we can take is to shift away from the analog model of permanence to the more digital model of 
um, fluidity. So instead of, you know, and going back to the sex offenders thing, you know, um, you know, once you're registered as a sex offender, you're always registered as a sex offender. Like the rest of your life, that's, that's your thing. In this model, in the more general criminal model, you know, if, if my score for, creating a, for committing a future violent crime is 82 at a certain point in time, uh, if, if it's a good model, if it's a valid model, that'll change. You know, if, if I get out of prison and don't commit another crime over end time, um, that will significantly reduce my score. And as my score reduces, so should the way that society views me, and so should the way that I'm allowed to act and participate within that system. So uh, one of, the, one of the, the neat things is that a, a digital system, a big data approach, can enable uh, that, that sort of consideration. So the, the high-risk individuals might be limited, but they can be limited knowing that those limits can go away um, over time. Uh, so, so just changing our thinking around how all of this stuff is done, I think will help to, to lubricate um, the, best, the best possible solutions. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dneemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Or email me, Dirk, at goinvo.com. So that's it for episode 116 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.